We are going to dive in to this text in Romans. I should say I am for sure not the lead pastor here. That is Jeremiah Smith. Uh, we love Pastor Jeremiah. He's incredible. He and his family are getting some much-needed and much-deserved rest this weekend. So I'm really grateful that he allows me to come up and share this space with you all. Um, I do this with our college students regularly. I do it with our youth regularly. But uh, I enjoy the privilege of getting to come here and uh, be with the whole church this morning. So our text, as Karen read for us, is Romans chapter 9. We're walking um, uh, straight through the book of Romans and have been doing that for quite a while now. And what this passage, it's easy to look over. In fact, in talking with some people about this passage this week, um, it's not a very common passage to hear preached on, um, but I love the commitment of Jeremiah. Like, we are walking through the book of Romans. So, um, and I think uh, when you dive into the scripture, I actually think it's incredibly rich. So I do encourage you to have your Bible out and follow along um, in Romans as we just unpack this. We're going to jump into it because there really is quite a lot to unpack. What Christ has done, what Paul has done, sorry, Paul wrote this book. Uh, what Paul has done up to this point in the book of Romans is make the case that in the unfolding of God's plan, Christ is given. Christ is the answer. And you can hear echoes of, of even Christ's own teaching saying, I am the gate. Like you can continue on the journey of faith with the Lord, but you have to enter through the gate. And Christ has claimed to be that gate, the way himself to the Father. The, the argument, like I said, it can get a little bit lost on us, but I do think it has really great importance. And to settle into it, we need to understand who the book of Romans is being written to. Um, it's going to the church in Rome, which is made up of largely Gentile believers. So Paul is on the one hand unpacking the foundations of their faith, but there's also a number of Jews in that church as well. And it was very common practice for these kind of letters to be passed around from group to group to group. So Paul likely has all of that in mind as he's writing this letter. Now, he's just said, Christ is the way. Christ is the way to the Father, and this is the unfolding of God's plan. And then he does something that really, really good teachers and orators do. I don't know if you are in school or can hearken back to school or even like a presentation at your workplace or even a sermon that you manage to stay awake through when you're hearing and you're tracking and then you've got a question that pops up. Like they're saying something is one way and you're like, yes, I'm with you. I'm with you. And then all of a sudden you're just like, well, what about this? And you don't say it, but you're thinking it and you start having questions about what they're saying. The best teachers, like the best professors I ever had, it was like they could see it in your eyes. And they would anticipate your questions. And they would teach the thing. And then they'd say, now I know what you're thinking. You're asking yourself this question. Here's the answer to that. That's what Paul is doing here. So he said, hey, Christ is the answer. But I know you've got questions about what that means in the scope of who I'm writing to. So let me, let me break that down for you is essentially what he's saying here. Christ is the answer. It's proven first by the scriptures and by his own teaching. That's what Paul has said in the first part of chapter 9. It's also proven out by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's also said in the first part of chapter 9. But he says here, but yes, there's a question that has to be answered. What about the massive amounts of those who claim Judaism who aren't following Christ? What about the massive amounts of people who aren't jumping on board, who have even rejected Christ? If he is the answer, and the Jews are God's chosen line, like Martha just laid out for us right up here, if they are rejecting them, then has God's word failed? 
Like, are his promises not coming true? And that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning, is can the word of God fail? That's what Paul's asking right here. That's what he's anticipating them asking. Because I would imagine in a room this size, some of you have wondered and maybe even are wondering that yourselves. Can God's word fail? I feel like God was telling me one thing. I thought this was going to be one thing when I signed on, and it seems quite different. Paul anticipates the questions, and then he answers it, and he starts right off the bat, it is not as though God's word has failed. That's our thesis statement for this section. It is not as though God's word has failed. The word of God doesn't fail. If there's one thing that is unchanging, the only thing that is unchanging It is our God in heaven. That's a foundation that you can build your life around. And he's about to unpack why. God himself is truth. So whatever he says has to be truth. He's the definition of truth. John outlines that in John 14. But again, what about unbelieving Israel? If the Jews are the chosen line, and then now you're saying this is for everyone, was there, is that plan B? Like, did it not work? Did you not foresee that happening? That's the argument we're unpacking here. And then in verse 6, Paul says, oh, it's just a problem of definitions. Like, that's, that's our disconnect here. We have just a simple problem of definitions. You see, in Jewish culture, Jewish heritage to become a Jew is passed down through the mother's line. Now, just like in Judaism, or just like in Christianity, how there's different groups within Christianity, there's different groups within Judaism. Can't paint with a super broad brush, but historically, traditionally, and especially in Jesus's time, your Jewish heritage was passed down from your mother. If your mother was Jewish, then you are Jewish. That's just the bottom line. There's a period there. But Paul is going to make some arguments about that. He says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In verse 7, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Which is kind of backwards. He's saying, hey, just because you're Abraham's child doesn't actually mean you're Abraham's child. And this is like a history lesson we're about to get into. So I've made some slides because I'm a teacher. I can't help it. I just have to do it. Uh, I hope y'all can track with me here. And I know this feels dry. Even studying this, this feels dry. But when you get to the end, if you can hang with me through this part, and not even hang with me, I see you, you're on the edge of your seats, I know you're there. But if you track with me, I really think, I I was so encouraged when Jeremiah asked me to preach this. Because when I first read it, I was like, ah. These are like those verses in Romans that are just, we, we like, you know, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. And that's beautiful. This puts form to that. It shows you what foundation those things are setting on here. So he's about to make two arguments. The question for us to wrestle with is, can God's word fail? That's what Paul's doing here. And if God's word can fail, then at best, our understanding of everything we're doing is just wrong. So can his word fail? It's a linchpin. Can we rely on God? Can we count on him to be tomorrow who he was yesterday? Is he going to change on us? Is he going to switch things up on us? Does God turn his back on his loved ones? Can his word fail? So his first argument here, again, 
this is where the slides are coming in. If you like them, again, my name is Jason. If you don't like them, my name is Jeremiah, and I'm the lead pastor. <laughs> Argument number one, um, we're tying in the whole of Scripture here. We're showing that Jesus is not some new plan. Just like the New Testament is not something that's separate from the Old Testament. So Paul hearkens back to the Old Testament. It's a continuation of the same story. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, he made promises to him and said, I am going to give you um, descendants and an inheritance. I am going to bless all the nations through those descendants and that inheritance. This promise was to Abraham, and it was to his wife, Sarah. So they're going to have descendants. That's, that's great. We can do it, right? Well, they got to be quite old, what Scripture would call past the age of childbearing, Actually, in Hebrews, it says they were as good as dead. That's like them driving home how old Abraham was. I don't recommend you use that language, but that's the language that they used to show they were very old. But Abraham knew this promise was for him, and Sarah believed the promise was for them. So what they did was they decided to force the issue. And so Sarah gave Abraham her maidservant, the woman who worked for her, to have children with. And her name was Hagar. Abraham and Hagar did have a son. They conceived a son, and his name was Ishmael. So it's like, okay, we've got a son. We've got descendants. Except that God had ordained that Sarah would be the mother of this nation. So Sarah, after Ishmael's born, actually does become pregnant. She gives birth to a son named Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael. Blessings to all the nations, but would only come through one line here, not two. That's the history. When you keep reading into verses 8 and 9, they bring the application to what that means, because I know that's, that's history. But there are two kinds of children that we're talking about here. Talked about from Abraham in the beginning, and Paul's reiterating it. There are children of natural birth, children of the flesh, and there are God's children, who we'll call children of the promise. Children of the flesh, children of the promise. If you have been with us through this Roman series so far, you've probably watched my kids grow up because we've been in Romans for almost like 18 years, I think. Um, but no, it really, it hasn't been that long, but it has been that rich. I mean, we're just walking through uh, methodically promise. When you hear promise, it should hearken you back to so many chapters before. This is a constant theme that Paul's weaving in through this whole book, promise. Specifically, for those of you who are just like, I see you on the edge of your seat, Read chapter 4 if you want to go further tonight. It talks all about promise. Also, just as an aside, this is something I encourage our students to do. I would encourage you all to read this whole book at some point. Um, we're finishing up the book of Romans over the next, I don't know, 11 years or so probably. But when we get to the end, you could finish it then. No, it'll actually be done this year. Um, you could sit down and read it all then or... Um, do, it, do it sometime this week. If you've got extra time, we don't have midweek activities, just to refresh yourself. This is one letter. It's written with one continuing theme and a bunch of supporting things within it. But I really encourage you, take the time and read the whole book together. Because when you do, you'll start to hear those words connecting. And promise is one of those connecting words that Paul's been putting through this whole thing to get to this point, to show that the promises of God are lasting. The argument he's making here, the first argument, is just because you're a child of Abraham by flesh doesn't mean you're a child of God in the family of God. So what I mean by that, we're all, 
We're all God's beloved. But for Jews in this time, if my mother was Jewish, for me, that meant I had everything signed, sealed, and delivered. I'm good to go. And Paul's making the argument that that's just not true. The Jewish nation didn't come through Ishmael, who was a child of Abraham. That's the argument here. Ishmael was Abraham's own flesh, and he wasn't Jewish. Again, this will loop back in just a moment, I promise. Abraham tried to force God's hand, but God's plans cannot be thwarted. Even by our own failures, God's plans will not be thwarted. He said that Sarah would be the mother, that these blessings would come through Isaac, and he kept his promise in his own timing, in his own way. But if you're asking, what do I get from this? It's that God's plans will not be thwarted, that you can't force his hand. Paul's saying, you say that anyone born of Abraham is a child of the promise. That is not so. Jesus directly said these to the Pharisees when they were bragging about being Abraham's children. And he just pointed to the dirt and was like, do you see these rocks? God could raise children from Abraham from these rocks. There's more here. You've got to build on a more solid foundation than that. Can you imagine Jesus looking you in the eyes and telling you that? There's more here. Don't miss it. He's imploring them, don't miss me. That's the first argument. Children of promise, children of the flesh. The second argument is Jacob and Esau. So this is the next generation of um, those to come from Abraham. Isaac, who was child of the promise, now gets with a woman named Rebecca. They get married, um, and they have children. We're continuing this line, right? We're, we're moving on um, these descendants, the families being born out to carry forth these promises that we've had. It's interesting, though, because Isaac and Rebecca, they have twins, and their twins, uh, the older one is named Esau, the younger twin is named Jacob. Convention would say that these blessings would be bestowed upon the firstborn, which would be Esau. But God is not confined just to convention. He's not just confined to custom. And God had ordained that the older would serve the younger, is what he says. The older will serve the younger. Esau will actually serve Jacob. Again, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might be lost, except for my awesome slides. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, you might be thinking, where are we at here? What does this have to do with me? I'm sitting in this beautiful church in the 21st century in Fort Worth, Texas. What circumstances led to God's foreknowledge of choosing Jacob? That's our question here. We can't say more than what Scripture says in this moment. I won't say more than what Scripture says. We want more. We want to know the answers. Like, why, why did God choose Jacob instead of Isaac to be the one who would herald these blessings? Or, I mean, choose Jacob instead of Esau. That's why the slides are here. Why did God choose Jacob instead of Esau to herald these blessings? We want black and white. You know, it's really interesting because we live in a society that's both dualistic and scientific. So, like, the foundations of how we're raised in school is to believe that, you know, there's a black or a white, like it's either here or it's there or it's somewhere I can find. Black and white. The scientific part of us tells us we can find the answer. Like we just have it. And I'm a science teacher. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I love science. I love method. I love digging in. 
But we've come to believe that if we can wrestle and we can work something all the way in, we can find out if it is black or if it is white, if it is here or if it is there. God is not black and white. God is the author of color, including colors we can't see. Have any of you seen the pictures from from the the Webb telescope that have come out that are just absolutely mind-blowing of the cosmos? If not, Webb telescope, go look at them. What's incredible is there are pictures in light that in a spectrum we can't even see, that we have instruments that can pick up. That's Our God authored those things. But we want him to be black and white. He illuminates things for us in his grace, but there are also things that are left dim. There are things that we don't always understand on this side of eternity. Maybe when we step into that glorious forever, those things will be clarified and those questions will be answered. Maybe when we step into eternity, they'll just be lost in the light of his glory and grace. We'll stand there before the king and they'll be washed away. I don't know. But we cannot be people who worship a living God and refuse mystery. Because what faith is, is it's the, the collision of the infinite and the finite. Like God, who is infinite and unmeasurable and unsearchable, makes himself known and searchable to us. We try to wrap our finite minds around the infiniteness of God. And I say that because I know we're talking here about the choosing of Jacob over Esau. There's a divine mystery there because God knows so much more about that than we do. But we're not left totally in the dark. Again, in God's grace, some explanation is given here. God had chosen Jacob, who he would uh, name he would change to Israel, to be the father of the tribes of this inheritance that's promised to Abraham. And it says he chose Jacob's line before these twins were even born. So that Jacob and Rebecca, so that, I'm sorry, so that Isaac and Rebecca could not claim it was anything they did. They couldn't bestow these blessings on their own. It was God's ordination that Jacob would lead this nation. It wasn't the works of their own hands is what Paul is arguing here. It wasn't the works of their own hands. He sets up the leaders of the patriarchs of Israel. He's saying from the very moment, these things that you worship, Israel, God is trying to cut down these idols that are built in your hearts. God has been showing you that that's not how he intends for you to live. Here's what I mean by that. With Abraham and Sarah, again, I know this is heavy. We're almost out of the weeds here. With Abraham and Sarah, and I have another slide for this too. With Abraham and Sarah, he was striking down this idol of proximity, the idol of proximity. He's saying to be around something is not the same as to belong to something. Just because I'm close doesn't mean I'm within. Um, There's this great philosopher of our time. His name is Justin Bieber. He once said... um, I once watched an interview where he said, just because I sit in Taco Bell, that don't make me a taco. I'm aiming for my younger audiences here. Hopefully y'all are tracking. See, I see you tracking with me. Um, the idea is that to belong in name only is not to belong at all. There's a deeper and a richer call here than just being close to something. Just because you're close to it doesn't mean you belong to it. 
That was with Abraham and Sarah. With the child of Isaac and Rebekah, he's striking down this idol that it's by works of our hands that we can gain hold of this. He's like, no, you don't take hold of citizenship in this new kingdom by the people you're around. That's Abraham and Sarah. You also can't work your way into it. That's Isaac and Rebekah. It's not by any work we can manifest or any amount of law-keeping or doing things right that we gain entrance into the title of child of God. If you have a teenager in your life who comes to group, group is our Wednesday night stuff, um, I would encourage you to ask them about the difference in faith and works. It's what we've been talking about. Again, teenagers, I'm putting you on the spot. Don't let me down. We've been talking about it for a few weeks. You guys got it. Or we can catch up right after this, and then you can tell them. Um, there is a big distinction between faith and works. And if you don't have a teenager in your life, you should get to know them because they're pretty awesome too. Works are about me. It's things I can bring forth. It's the works of my hands. God ordained Jacob. God set that plan into motion. God had purposes from long ago that he would accomplish through this line. There's no works of your hands there. Now, when we have faith, our hands work. Don't get me wrong. We'll get there. But it's not by works. More on that in a moment. But there's one more verse we have to look at here, which is verse 13, which is kind of weird if you're unfamiliar with the language here. And it says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Hate. That verse, like, hits hard. <laughs> Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let me be clear, and I know some of you may not agree with this, and I would love to have that conversation. I don't think an accurate reading of this text is that God ordained to hate Esau from the womb. And... I get there by a few methods. And there's a number of scholars who agree with that too. Um, I think a failed reading of this text is to say that God hated Esau from the womb. I'll leave it to Jeremiah to unpack that more in the coming weeks as we're, <laughs> as we're on this verse is leading into the next set of arguments, which again, Jeremiah can do. I'll take my own vacation at that point. But here's a quick summation of, of why I can say that with confidence. When he says Esau and Jacob, he's talking about the nations. This is a quote from the book of Malachi. And this verse specifically is a time when, okay, so Jacob had children, that family grew into the Israelites. Esau had children, and that family grew into the Edomites. And there was a time when Israel needed help, and they called on Edom to help them. They called on their ancestors, their relatives, their distant relatives to come and help. And Edom refused so when God says here, hate, on the one hand, it's an attitude towards the injustices that were served to his people. He hates and rejects the injustices that they were served by the Edomites. So that's one definition. But also the word hate, this is the same word that Jesus says when he says, unless you hate your father and your mother, you cannot come with me. And it's not our hate. This is where English just drops the ball. It's the idea more of rejection. It's the idea of being unwilling to let something go. It's a re-emphasis of the point. The Lord and his divine foreknowledge, which is not random, it is true and it is right, knowing things we could never fathom, chose Jacob over Esau. It was not the works of their hands. And this is the crux of the passage. The promises of the Lord are not random. They are not random, and they all come through. 
From the very garden, as Martha, Martha did my sermon up here. I don't even know why I'm still up here. From the very garden of Eden, when sin entered the world, we're told that was through this deception of this snake, this mysterious, mysterious serpent. And God decreed a plan from that moment to deal with sin and before. And he said the serpent would be cursed. The cause of the sin and therefore sin itself would be struck down. This descendant would come from Eve, her name literally translating to life, who would be bitten by the snake, but whose foot would crush the snake. Sin itself would be put to death, a promise to unfold. Later, we meet Abraham, this descendant of this woman, whom God says he will use to bless all the nations. It's Abraham who this promise will continue through, a promise taken further. Abraham and Sarah try to force the plan of God. They end up creating a huge mess, not only for their own time, but that continues into our time now. But God's plans can't be thwarted. Isaac was the child of the promise. The promise would hold and the plan would unfold. And then Isaac and Rebekah continue this line and the Lord continues to honor the promise and to further this plan. He chooses Jacob, who would be the father of the 12. One of those would father King David. And from that very line, we get the one, the very word that was spoken in the garden. The, not just the fulfillment, but the very essence of these promises, this blessing to all the nations, that is Christ. Christ has always been the plan. He is no plan B. That's what Paul is saying here. These things that you argue about, has God's word failed? Absolutely not. We may say it again. No, the word of the Lord, it never fails. This question is about who is the true Israel. You see, those who reject Christ are no true Israel. Even to be Jewish and to reject Christ is to be no true Israel. Because to be true Israel is to be a child of the promise. That's what it means. It's not bloodline that qualifies these children. It's not works that qualify these children. It is faith in Jesus, the very promise himself, who the book of Hebrews says is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel and the guarantor of a better covenant. This covenant would be for all the nations, not based on lineage or works, but on the blood of Christ poured out for you and on his body broken for you. Those are the foundations of a new covenant. The promise all along was Christ. You can stand on that. From the very beginning, we may not understand all the pieces, but you can stand on God even in misunderstanding. You think his promises have failed. I understand. I understand, again, in a room this size, some of us are really wrestling with this. I'm trying to do that professorial thing where I'm thinking about the questions you have. But I also have had my own questions. And I understand that you might be wondering, God, have your promises failed? Because my life does not look like now what I expected it to look like. Maybe, maybe his timing is just different. Maybe it's not your timing. And maybe we can praise him for that because it's better. Maybe you aren't where you think you should be. Maybe his goals aren't your goals. You can praise him for that. His are better. Maybe this all just isn't shaping out how you intended well, maybe his will is not your will. And maybe we can praise him for that because his is better. And in his divine will, alongside his grace and his power, what he does is he takes things the enemy intends for evil and he takes the places that we just massively fumble and he still works them for good. 
And he takes all those things and he still wraps them up in this plan that's been going since the beginning. All these people today, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, all these children, they don't get to see the promises fulfilled. I'm going to read for you out of Hebrews 11. It says, By faith, Abraham, even though he was past the age of childbearing, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. So from one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. Seashore. Yes, Jason, that's great. That's not how my life looks. They got to see the rainbow. I don't see a rainbow. I hear you. I've been there. Your pain is your own. I would love, if there are things you need to talk about and ways we need to unpack this, please come and meet with me. It's literally my job. It's like the craziest thing I get to do with my life. I love it. But I do hear you. When we walk with Jesus long enough, we all walk with a covenant limp. There are places where we've all wrestled with this. But to be loving and honest, yet firm and direct, you have to keep reading. If you keep going in that passage, it's not rainbows. All these people still living by faith when they die. This is later in the book of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. What more shall I say? And then he says, can I bring up all these other people who experienced hardship and rejection for this promise? The world was not even worthy of those people, the author says. They were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what had been promised in full. God had planned something far better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So what does it mean for us for now? It means the kingdom is yours. Like the door to the kingdom is open. That's what Paul is saying here. Your name doesn't qualify you for this. That's the Abraham and Sarah. Now, there's a welcome and a warning here. So I want to talk to those of you who don't yet know Christ. You need to hear that your family background, your past, even your current situation, they don't disqualify you. Christ came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn and follow. So what does qualify you for this? If it's not name or, or proximity, it's faith. Faith doesn't mean having all the answers. It's not doing all the right things. It's faith in this work of Jesus. It's understanding that there is sin in my life, that there is something greater, and I'm separated from that because of how my life is. It's understanding that Christ came to put that sin to death. But that's the path of discipleship. That's the path you walk on. It doesn't, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. Discipleship is walking through this life according to the values and metrics of his kingdom. It takes a lifetime and then into eternity to learn that. Now, sin must be paid for. And we want that. Like, we want God to be a God of justice. So there's sin in my life. God says that sin must be atoned for. He is just. 
It's a promise. And in his justice, praise God, he is merciful. And he's given us mercy. And he says, the punishment that this sin deserves, I'll take on myself. That was the point of the cross and why the cross is necessary for salvation. It's the very argument Paul's making here. He traded his righteousness for our death. The seal of that promise is the fact that death could not hold him. That he rose victorious. We'll come together and we will absolutely triumphantly celebrate that here in a few weeks on Easter. He then gave us his very spirit. Yeah, you cannot do this on your own, he said. So here's my spirit to dwell with you, to lead you in this, to be your comforter and counselor. And you know what that means? It means you're going to be different. It means now you're a citizen of a different kingdom. So you're going to be a stranger here. This isn't your home. You're just passing through. And by grace, we get to see some of those things come clear as crystal. And in his divine foreknowledge and infancy, some of those things we only get to see and believe from a distance. Because he's working this plan through all of us. For those who count themselves as part of the kingdom, if you, you, when you claim the title Christian, there is a warning here. And it's to count yourself as a member of the family. It doesn't make you a child of the promise automatically. Now, I'm not here to cast doubt, so follow with me. God's plan on the large scale is to save people. So when you take that on the small scale, it's to save the person. It's to work in my own life. Like, it's to work in your own life. It isn't a salvation that arises from a group identity, but a group identity that arises from salvation. We're marked and we're set apart. We're called to live in such a way that we have this intimacy with God where he just pours himself out of us, his love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. His faithfulness and his gentleness and self-control are who we are. And they're born out in us individually and collectively. So this shouldn't cast doubt. I know some of you are doubters. I'm not casting doubt on salvation by any means. Christ says faith is small as a mustard seed. Faith is small as a mustard seed. If you have faith in Christ but still wrestle with answers you don't have, that's not what we're talking about. We've done teachings in here on doubt before. Jeremiah has done a number of those. And if that's you, again, I encourage you to find one of us as staff, find a discipleship group, go look back at those sermons on the archives online. What this, I hope, does is empowers us, that it empowers us to live differently, to know that from the beginning, God's plan was to bring his kingdom here on earth, not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. Some of you feel disconnected to this. I understand. Listen to the scriptures here, please. The circumstances in your life right now don't disqualify you from the love of God. And it's your deep frustration with either faith or the institution of the church, they don't disqualify you from the love of God. Maybe you're really cynical about things and that's nurtured by an endless stream of media intake from news and social media and office gossips and things like that. Those things don't qualify you from, the, don't disqualify you from the love of God. Your overbusy schedules, the fact that you're working so hard and you never feel like you get above water, those things don't disqualify you from the love of God. Instead, I challenge you, as scripture does here, to see those things not as immovable objects or heart postures you can't change, but invitations from the Spirit 
to a deeper, richer relationship with your Savior, your King who's willing to call himself your friend. The last thing I'll say, the children of the flesh missed and still miss the invitation of the Holy Spirit into this deep, rich relationship. It's a relationship not built on name or status, not built on anything that you can do in your own power, but on faith in the Son of God. Don't miss it and don't grow numb to it. The psalmist says, I will awaken the dawn with my praises. That's what it is to be a child of the promise. It's to recognize that Christ was no plan B, it was always Christ. And that you're no plan B. It was always you. It's to realize that no matter whether your feet are on this mountaintop or you're just lying prone in a valley, the ground underneath you is unshakable. The promises are true. The Lord is faithful. He has always been faithful. And he will always be faithful. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for dense text that we can wrestle with and find you in and that you'll speak to us in those things. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the blood of Christ that covers our sin, that welcomes us in. band's going to get set. We're going to play one final song. I'm going to ask our deacons to come to the front. If you all just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for a minute, even if you're not a praying person, just out of respect for those praying around you. Um, this is something that I like to do when I teach. Um, it helps me know. Um, I feel like God's trusted us with this moment together. And so um, I'm just going to ask a few simple prompts here of ways I can be praying for you and ways our leadership can be praying for you. And if it's you, just raise your hand. We're not going to hunt you down or anything. Um, we just, we're a praying church. We believe there's power in prayer. So, after hearing this today, if you just feel like you need the Lord to remind you that he doesn't fail, if you believe this in your head, but you need to internalize this, and you're struggling to do that, would you humbly just slip your hand up so we can pray for you if this is something you wrestle with? And you don't have to, there's no pressure to Okay, I see your hand. Thank you. If there's anyone else, thank you. If there's anyone else, you're so loved. We just want to pray for you. I see your hand. Thank you for being bold enough. I promise he won't fail you. If you've been around this, maybe this is really new. Or maybe you've been around this a long time and you feel more like you're just part of this as proximity and that there's no intimacy here. And you crave that intimacy with the Lord. Would you raise your hand and we'll pray for you in that. I see your hand, thank you. If there's anyone else, you crave that intimacy. Like I've been around this, maybe for so long I've become numb to it. And maybe if you're hearing this right now, and you feel like this is the first time you've heard it this way, and it's your first time to really hear that, like, Christ has had you in mind since the beginning, that you're no plan B, 
and you feel that starting to grow into something in your heart, you might not even know what it is. But if you just feel that starting to grow, if we can pray for you, raise your hand. He won't fail you, and it's always been you. Deepest desire is to have an intimate relationship with you. What scripture calls a divine communion. Now and on into eternity. Father God, I thank you so much for those who've raised their hand, God, whether they're trying to internalize this or they're wrestling with things, with doubt, or maybe life is going great and they just want richer, deeper communion and relationship with you, God. Would you take them there? Would you bring people in their lives alongside them who can walk them down that road of discipleship? People who can speak from experience and from love. I thank you for your word that is rich and true and never fails. And it's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.